Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here to talk about gun laws and why, at least in recent American history, they never seem to change. Three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative, the motion is not agreed to. That's tape from the Senate floor, where yesterday, eight days after Orlando, four different gun measures failed in the Senate. Three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative, the motion is not agreed to. And even though a few senators are still working on a possible compromise bill, the motion is not agreed to. There is little chance of that compromise bill getting through Congress this election year. On this vote, the yeas are 47, the nays are 53. And today we're going to talk about just why that's the case. Three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative. The motion is not agreed to. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. All right. So, Sue, what happened yesterday? There are bills that came up for vote in part because of the filibuster that was not an actual filibuster last week. Okay. So what happened on the floor this week was uh, the result of Democratic Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, who in response to the Orlando shootings, held the floor of the Senate last week for nearly 15 hours to protest congressional inaction on any type of gun legislation in recent years. Not technically a filibuster. It was referred to as a talking filibuster. And that's because there wasn't an actual... They weren't preventing anything. They gotcha. weren't preventing anything. They were trying to promote the idea of having a vote, which is what they had then subsequently in the yeah. next week. And it worked, right? Because and it worked. now there was a vote mm-hmm. yesterday on what, four pieces of, of uh, so, legislation? So uh, Republican and Democratic Senate leaders agreed to hold four votes on Monday night uh, on amendments to an underlying spending bill, uh, competing proposals. And the two main proposals uh, were two versions of the same idea was a proposal by Senator Dianne Feinstein of California and a competing Republican proposal proposal by John Cornyn, a Republican from Texas, that would, uh, I think it's sort of casually referred to as no fly, no buy, that if you appear on a watch list, there are multiple watch lists, so that was part of the debate, that if you appear on one of those watch lists, it would enhance the power of the government to block you from purchasing a firearm. Uh, Both of the measures failed to get a supermajority, which is 60 votes in the United States Senate. This is generally the high watermark bar for uh, contentious pieces of legislation, almost certainly when they touch on things, including constitutional rights. In this case, the Second Amendment right is at, at the heart of this debate. All of the proposals failed. Out of that failure, which was a foregone conclusion, we knew none of these bills had 60 votes, so there was no surprise on these votes. Susan Collins, who's a centrist Republican from Maine, is now trying a new way. She, this afternoon, unveiled another proposal similar to the Cornyn and Feinstein proposals with some tweaks to it that would essentially limit a very small group of people who are already under... uh, already been flagged to the government as people of interest, it would make it tougher for them to purchase firearms. And that proposal may get a vote again this week, maybe as early as Thursday. And it is an open question as to whether it could get 60 votes or not. And let's just say parenthetically that the reason any of these things needs 60 votes is because of the real filibuster, which is always applied to anything of note or substance or certainly controversy, and that is that you have to get three-fifths to cut off debate. That's the real underlying threat of the filibuster that's been blocking gun control and lots of other kinds of legislation for a very long time. Because two of these votes got 53 in favor, correct? Right. So that's a majority. Right. So there was... 
some semblance of bipartisan support for at least two of these measures. And this has happened before, you know, in in, in response to the Newtown uh, school shootings, there was another effort to change the background check system in the country. And that effort got a majority of senators, but it did not get a super majority and it failed. And I think particularly for people on the gun control side of this debate, they have found that threshold incredibly frustrating. And it's it's a statistic you hear a lot that a majority of Americans and a majority of senators do, in fact, support some of these changes to gun laws. But until you have a supermajority, you can't really move forward. Huh. That's right. And even though we have these polls that tell us over and over and have for years that most people in the country think at least some greater background checks or something like the no-fly, no-buy restriction would make sense, there are pressure points in our politics that ultimately mean more than public opinion polls. And one of those is if there is a presumption within one party that people in that one party would pay a greater price, say, in primary challenges and losing fundraising and losing a, an A rating from the National Rifle Association, the people in that one party have to be more aware of that loss, that threat, that jeopardy than the people in the other party. And the defense of the 60-vote threshold is that in order to get 60 votes in the Senate, it usually is a product of a lot of negotiations, a lot of bipartisan effort, and and a consensus agreement. And that is, both parties agree, what you need if you're going to try and change gun laws, that you need to have something bigger than just a partisan side vote on what is, as Senator Heidi Heitkamp said today, probably the most contentious issue before the Congress today. Sue, you were there for a lot of this last night. You were watching, Ron. Both of you have seen several gun debates happen before. Did anything about this one seem different, seem new, or is it the same script that we've been following for the last several mass shootings? You know, Monday to me was not surprising because a lot of times with these votes, you know ahead of time whether they're going to pass or whether they're going to fail or if they're going to be close and then we're all watching from the galleries. And, And we knew going in that these proposals didn't have the 60 The interesting part to me and what's maybe different this time is we do continue to see this effort by Susan Collins to maybe try and get something done. And why it's potentially different this time is that we are in an election year. And while a lot of times people think election years are times where things like this can't get done, this is an election year in which you have a lot of senators in states where it could potentially behoove them both in a policy basis and politically to find a new way on the gun debate and try and look proactive on something that so many Americans are just blown away by the fact that Congress has essentially not passed a really significant gun law since 1993, which was the assault weapons ban that went into effect in 1994 and expired 10 years later. That's right. And when they tried to extend it, it failed. Uh, And that was uh, at another time of Senate majority on the Republican side. But uh, there was some feeling at the time that it might happen, and it just did not. So that's the dominant impression that we all have, that that any kind of a move towards any restriction of gun rights has been dead in the water uh, for more than 20 years. But Monday night did have a a little bit of an attitudinal change in that there seemed to be a number of senators who were yearning towards some kind of better compromise. And take the example of Kelly Ayotte from New Hampshire. Uh, she has an A rating from the NRA. She does not have anything to fear on that side, but she's in a really tough re-election campaign this fall in November. And the popular Democratic governor of her state, Maggie Hassan, has 
challenged her and is running against her and is hanging that NRAA rating around her neck, and she could really use a good deal. So Susan Collins is trying to structure that really good deal. She's the senator from neighboring Maine, another Republican. So she's interested in fashioning a compromise that could really help her colleague Kelly Ayotte. It's still a very uphill battle, though, because even if the Collins proposal, which Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said today, he would allow it to get a vote. So we know it will come up for a vote. We don't know if it'll get to 60. But even if it gets to that 60 watermark and a piece of gun legislation does get through the Senate, it still has to go to the House of Representatives, which is, which, very Republican. Which is controlled by Republicans and arguably even more conservative on the gun issue. So it would be a incremental victory for senators who want to advance this kind of legislation, but it would still be a tremendously heavy lift to get this done this year. Yeah. So we're seeing a lot of gridlock on this issue in the U.S. Congress, but at the state and local level, there is some movement, correct? Yes. I mean, we talk a lot about congressional inaction, but there has been a lot of action on gun laws in the states and in the courts. And I have to credit the New York Times with this because they did uh, they did a lot of work where they calculated all the states that have taken action on gun laws. And it says, in the years since Newtown, 1,500 state gun bills have been introduced and 109 have become law. Wow. And, and this is uh, the, and the, this number has gotten even higher because this is a dated information. But what is so fascinating is that overwhelmingly, these gun laws that have been enacted by almost, a, I think, a two-thirds majority have been to ease access to wow. guns. And that the response – there is absolutely responses in legislatures to mass shooting events. But the majority of those responses has been to make it easier for law-abiding citizens to gain access to guns – under huh. a talking point that I think you hear a lot from uh, gun advocates who say, you know, it's legal law-abiding citizens that need to be the ones carrying guns to prevent yeah. to, it, to these situations from yeah. happening or to limit their effectiveness. And we always see these spikes in gun sales also after these events. Too. Yeah. I think 2015 was a record year for gun sales in this country. Over 23 million guns were sold in 2015. Uh, and a lot of that is in response to, I think, oftentimes lobbying efforts by the NRA and other gun groups that will say, well, you know, anytime a little bill might come up in a state legislature to restrict access to guns, they'll say, you know, people in Illinois want to take your gun away. And that oftentimes creates a public response where people will go and buy guns. In Texas or in some other state, because even though there's no chance that anyone in Texas is going to be talking about taking their gun away, if they hear about people taking guns away or wanting to do so, or even to restrict their use or accessibility or sale, they're going to be worried about it happening in their state too. Or at least that seems to be our experience with what's happened in the past. Even after major shootings, people go, oh, well, now the federal government's going to do something. I better go buy that gun I want right now. So you can't talk about guns right now without talking about the influence uh, that many perceive to come from the National Rifle Association, the NRA. What is the deal with them in this fight? How heavily do they weigh in all of this? The NRA is one of the most powerful lobbying organizations the United States has ever seen. They have been enormously effective. In the years since 1993, they have helped drive change 
on the subject of whether it's more important to have gun control or more important to have protection of gun owners' rights. So that if you look at the polls over that period of time, what at one time was a clear preference among Americans to have greater gun control back in the early 1990s has changed to the point where it goes back and forth right across the line of a little more for gun control, a little more for gun ownership rights. And the NRA has had a lot to do with that, but not alone. There are other gun rights organizations like Gun Owners of America who are constantly nipping at the NRA's heels and saying, if you compromise with those gun control people, those Democrats, those liberals, we're going to be right after you. The thing, too, about the NRA is, and I agree with everything Ron said, they have absolutely proven to be one of the most powerful lobbying outfits this country's ever known. But part of that is because there are a lot, the people that make up the NRA, the grassroots. And it's people. And it's people. This is like, this is not astroturf, you know, yeah. big money comes in and there changes the debate. There are members throughout there the country. There are members in every state in this nation who are active members of the NRA. And I know many members of the NRA, and if you've ever interacted with members of the NRA, they oftentimes, I, this, this is a blanket sort of statement, but oftentimes people that vote on gun issues, it is one of the most driving forces that gets them to the polls. So what has strengthened the NRA is that its members, when they get an action alert call that says, you know, go out and vote against Sam Sanders, Sam Sanders is, is this way on guns. They mobilize yes. and they show up and they vote. And that is what has let the NRA become so powerful is that people feel incredibly strongly on this issue. And on the opposite side of the people that would like to restrict gun rights, who would like to see tougher gun laws, for a very long time, there was no counterpunch. Now, yes, there are groups that exist in Washington, but they have simply not been anywhere near as funded or organized as the NRA. You know, part of what I hear from folks, it, it, it is this portrayal of the NRA as having such a vice grip on everything about this discussion and folks in Congress. But my whole thing, it's like the NRA can't be doing this by itself. They are a group that represents the interests of millions of Americans. You know, the money that they spend on, you know, lobbying is a lot of money, but it's not the most money. I mean, it, it feels like this is bigger than the NRA. It's cultural. And yeah. there are lots of Americans that fundamentally believe in gun culture and don't want that to be in any way diluted. That is true. And there is no question that the NRA is in no, in no sense, you know, somebody who came up with a cause and then manufactured a lot of support for it. They have magnified the support for it. And there have been many ways in which that's been done. I don't actually think money is the most important, although some of the money that they have spent has been spent creating the impression that people were coming to seize your guns, that there was a serious effort to repeal the Second Amendment, to change the Constitution. And I just simply have never seen any evidence of any kind of an effort to repeal the Second Amendment. There have been efforts to redefine it, and that may be the same thing in some people's minds. But there has never been an effort to pass a constitutional amendment that had any kind of support at all to repeal the Second Amendment, nor has there been any kind of an effort made or an initiative made on any sort of broad scale to go out and seize everyone's guns or even to register everyone's guns. That's something people are always saying. They're going to register your guns, then they're going to take it away. And that just simply doesn't happen. Follow-up question. The NRA's stance on guns and gun rights was not always what it is now. Uh, there was a time decades ago where leadership of that group said, we don't actually support every citizen across the country having concealed carry or open carry. Can we talk about how they as a group have evolved over time to the extent that we can? 
I, I'll take a stab at it. I do think that particularly in the early 90s and around the time the assault weapons ban was pushed through, there was more of a middle ground in politics on guns, or at least there was more of a conversation. And part of that is the fact that there used to be more Republican senators who represented states that had lots of Democrats. And there used to be a lot more Democrats that had a lot more conservative gun-owning citizens and constituents. And there was more room for conversation there. And I think part of what has emboldened the NRA to take what I think some people would see as a more partisan and a more conservative stand is the parties have fundamentally shifted and sifted on this issue where it's a bright, stark line right now. When you look at these votes, there used to be a group of people in the middle, Republicans that would vote to restrict gun access, Democrats who were adamantly against it, and they don't really exist in Congress anymore. And I would say the shift has been on the Democratic side of this equation. Huh. because How so? so in 1994, when the assault weapon ban went into effect, in the hindsight and the politics of that, when people look back, that is a vote that a lot of people think led to the Republican takeover of Congress, hmm. that it cost so many Democrats their seats. Some would even argue that that shift in culture on guns also was a factor in costing Democrats the White House in 2000 and more Southern conservative seats and that shift away from the Democratic Party. And so... After that, the lessons of the Democratic Party, the 2000s, there was a vacuum on the Democratic Party. There was not this advocacy for gun control that we see now. And part of what has revived it is that the reason why they didn't want to pick this fight is they were still trying to win white, conservative, rural voters. And they're gone now. They're not in the Democratic Party. Those voters are Republicans. And the Democratic coalition is younger. It's more diverse. It's more urban. More women. More women. And the Democratic Party today is much more engaged and interested in changing gun laws than the Democratic Party of 2000. Yeah. Let's remember that Al Gore back in 2000 was from Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And that was just the natural order of things because prior to 1994, most of the Senate seats in the South were held by Democrats. Most of the House seats in the South and the governorships in the South were held by Democrats. But after 1994, which did follow those votes that Sue just mentioned, there were many factors, but guns were big among them. And after 1994, the Republicans had the majority of Senate seats, House seats, and governorships in the South and have held it ever since. And when you look at that polling data that we were talking about earlier that said that back in the early 90s, about half the Republicans thought it was more important to have more gun control, about half thought more important to have more protection for gun owners' rights. Since then, it's split to 71% gun owners' rights, 21% gun control and part of the reason for that is because a lot of those people who felt differently at, in that era, in the early 90s, changed parties. They went from being Democrats to being Republicans and have remained so ever since. But the wording of that question and those, those polling questions, gun rights versus gun control, you get different numbers than when you ask about specific measures of gun restrictions. And when you ask about specific things like background checks for everybody, closing the terror loophole and the gun show loophole, there are astronomical amounts of support for those measures. Because right? those things in a vacuum sound good. But when you really get into the politics of it, then the other side gets to make its arguments. And instead of just saying, hey, we're going to keep guns out of the hands of terrorists, popular idea. Yeah. Who's against that? Who's against that? <laughs> Only the terrorists, right? But... 
if you start to balance that out with what it might mean, then you're going to have an argument and you're going to have a political result. So I think one of the things as we go forward in this debate that's important to think about and the questions that I think policymakers think about, and we've heard this a lot in the response to Orlando, is the question you hear from lawmakers is, what is the law we could have passed that would have prevented this? And would any of the ones argued this week have done anything to prevent Orlando? No, and and this has been the so same no. problem over and over. This was the question after Newtown, after San Bernardino, after Fort Hood, is the question is, what is the law that was on the books that would have prevented this? And I think one of the things that's important to remember when we talk about these shootings is that the thing they have in common is they were, at their hearts, lone wolf attacks. And that that is the hardest thing, not only as a policymaker, but for law enforcement, for intelligence officials. I mean, these are the needle in the haystack that is incredibly complicated. And so there is no simple solution to this. There is no one measure you can point to to say, well, universal background checks and that wouldn't this then, wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then but then also and this is an, a really interesting thing to think about in this debate is that part of the reason why and even some liberal legal scholars will side with Republicans on this is that if you prevent someone from buying a gun because they're on a watch list, are you denying them due process? Are you denying someone a constitutional right and they haven't been accused of a crime? And while that may seem easier to do to the Second Amendment because it's a gun, because of what it is, that is a very dangerous precedent yeah. to set in American legal. Right. What if and the GOP it? says that lots of folks on that list shouldn't be on it. Right. And so what if you then just say, well, gee, anybody we put on this watch list doesn't really have any rights under the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. So, yes, if you can take one away, perhaps you can take others away. And if there's no way of adjudicating yourself off of that watch list, then that becomes a recipe for tyranny. Yeah. In, in many ways, the script of this latest tragedy from Orlando reads a lot like previous mass shootings. But there was one thing that has changed, and that is the role uh, that could be played by the LGBTQ community in the fight over gun control now. You know, last week, the Human Rights Campaign issued a big statement and resolution saying that they are going to join the fight to argue for more of what they call common sense gun control. Now, to be clear, the HRC does not speak for all of gay America, but they are an important part of it. And they have had some previous successes on things like marriage equality. And they get things done. Um, (laughs) Does this change anything? Does the entrance of gay ink into this fight change stuff? It certainly is another large thumb on the scale because the LGBTQ community, as you say, has had an extraordinary track record in the last dozen years or so in taking their issue from being a liability for the Democratic Party to being one of its stronger calling cards. So that in 2004, the Republicans were putting gay rights uh, or I should say same-sex marriage on the ballot so that they would bring out their vote. Now, on the other side, we see... People in polls, 60, 65 percent saying that they support same-sex marriage. Tremendous turnaround in 12 years. So that's a great ally, perhaps, for the gun control movement. But we also have to ask, where would that effectiveness be most effective? In what states? With what kinds of voters? Would they really be reaching people who are in the middle on gun rights? Uh, Would they really be bringing new votes in for those candidates or would they be essentially confirming the views of those who already feel that way? And one of the things that we see here, and as, as Sue said, 
many of the laws that have been passed in the wake of mass shootings have been laws to make it easier to get guns. And in red states, that's been the case. But in blue states, they've been going the other way. And so, for example, Connecticut and New York have passed new restrictions on certain kinds of weapons. And when these come up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court says, we're not going to review that. We're okay with that. If the state puts new restrictions on, as long as they're not too onerous, as long as we can accept it under the standards of previous decisions that we've made, as long as it isn't something too terribly offensive to the Supreme Court, they have let those states, blue states by and large, have their greater restrictions. Although this is like such an interesting part of this debate too, because we now have a country that has states that are fundamentally divided between red states and blue states on gun laws. I mean, the gun laws in Texas and the gun laws in Connecticut are radically different and in some ways incoherent. You know, how can you bring your gun from Connecticut to Texas? I mean, it creates all these secondary legal questions and loopholes, but it it is incredibly divided. Connecticut, which the court this week, is Connecticut essentially, after Newtown, passed an assault weapons ban. And the state of Connecticut now has an effective assault weapons ban. But But it's Connecticut in the midst. It's surrounded by like 20,000 other states and you can drive from one to the other in five minutes. I mean, my question with these state rules and laws is like, are any of these actually really effective? They're not going to be effective unless all the states around them have similar laws. And maybe they wouldn't be that effective even if they didn't, but you would at least find out. Uh, There was this attempt made for 10 years to have something of a ban on such weapons. And uh, There's a very lively debate as to whether it did a lot of good or whether it didn't and whether it could have been enforced better or whether it's just impossible to deal with guns and people's desire to have them. But it is clear that you have a better chance of dealing with them if you don't have the state of Virginia selling guns under one set of rules and right across the bridge the District of Columbia trying to have much more restrictive rules. It's clear that that is extraordinarily difficult as you suggest. Okay, that's it for this episode. We'll be back on Thursday with our roundup of the week's political news and the latest on just what is happening with Donald Trump's campaign. Email us an audio file of a question you have for the podcast, and we might play it in the show. Our address is nprpolitics at npr.org. Record it on your lunch break, walking the dog, out with friends, anywhere you like. As always, more of our coverage is at nprpolitics.org and on your local public radio station. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.